So, 1 Kings 15, the healing of Naaman. The king of Aram had a great admiration for Naaman, the commander of his army, because through him the Lord had given Aram great victories. But though Naaman was a mighty warrior, he suffered from leprosy. At this time, Aramean raiders had invaded the land of Israel, and among their captives was a young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. One day the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go to see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. So Naaman told the king what the young girl from Israel had said. Go and visit the prophet, the king of Aram told him. I will send a letter of introduction for you to take to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying as gifts 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter to the king of Israel said, With this letter I present my servant, uh, my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, Am I God, that I can give life and take it away? What is this man? Why is this man asking me to heal someone with leprosy? I can see that he's just trying to pick a fight with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, he sent this message to him. Why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me, and he will learn that there is a true prophet here in Israel. So Naaman went to his horses and chariots, went with his horses and chariots, and waited at the door of Elisha's house. But Elisha sent a messenger out to him with this message. Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and you will be healed of your leprosy. But Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he would certainly come out to meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord his God and heal me. Aren't the rivers of Damascus, the Abana, and the Farpar better than any of the rivers of Israel? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned and went away in a rage. But his officers tried to reason with him and said, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So you should certainly obey him when he says simply, Go and wash and be cured. So Naaman went down to the Jordan River and dipped himself seven times as the man of God had instructed him. And his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child, and he was healed. Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. They stood, stood before him, and Naaman said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha replied, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. And though Naaman urged him to take the gift, Elisha refused. Then Naaman said, All right, but please allow me to load two of my mules with earth from this place, and I will take it back home with me. From now on, I will never again offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other god except the Lord. However, may the Lord pardon me in this one thing, 
when my master, the king, goes into the temple of the god Rimon to worship there and leans upon my arm, may the Lord pardon me when I bow too. Go in peace, Elisha said. So Naaman started home again. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for uh, my friend here, Dean. I thank you, God, for what you've uh, put in him to say today. I pray, Lord, that we might have receptive uh, hearts and minds and that we might be able to be changed uh, in many ways by what we hear today. Thank you, God. Amen. Yeah, thanks. Hey, um, the monitor here isn't working, so... I think you need to turn the resolution down on the computer because I'm kind of preaching from that, so it won't work so well if I can't see it. There'll be a slight pause. <clears throat> this fun preaching in the summer because, like, no one's here. <laughs> I mean, not no one. All of you are important. Um, at the moment, it was kind of flickering. It might still, I don't know. We'll give it a moment. I think it'll work. Cool. No? Keeping it easy, man. I do have a stunning slide, though, stunning pictures, so be ready for that. Hmm? I have nothing now. Pardon me? Oh, it's in Dropbox. Have you not loaded it? Well, that's fun. <laughs> I've got it here. <laughs> Do you see? Check out the map. Woo! <laughs> it should be in Dropbox under service PowerPoints. Okay. Yes? Ha! All right. Luckily, it's a short sermon, so we won't even go over, even, even though this started late. So, if you were here last week, um, First Kings, um, what's her name? Sandra. Sandra, bad with names. Sandra spoke on First Kings, and uh, this is a continuation. First and Second Kings is the same book in Hebrew. It's just been divided up to make it easier for us, but originally it was the same book. So it's the same background. It's um, uh, the nation of Israel reached the high point in its existence under King David, where they, it's really the only time in its entire history that it occupied all the land that God had given it. And, um, and it followed God during that time. And since that time, things deteriorated. Um, the nation as a whole kind of 
started to turn to other gods. And it became a divided kingdom where um, in the north, it was no longer one nation of Israel. It was Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and they had separate kings. And during this time, um, God was still there, but people weren't really turning to him too much, so God sent a lot of prophets. And in, in Kings, the major prophets are Elijah and Elisha. So we're looking more at Elisha this time. And there's a little map. Um, Judah in the south, Israel in the north. And north of Israel is Aram, or Aram. And that's relevant because that's what the story is all about, the guy from Aram. I'm just going to go through the whole passage and kind of highlight a few things, and then I'll spend some time just uh, talking about some things we can learn from this passage. So it's the, the story is about Naaman, and Naaman was like the right-hand man to the king of Aram, and he was uh, a great general, lots of victories, and, but he had leprosy. So leprosy in the Bible can mean a lot of different things, but it means some sort of a skin disease. Uh, it would appear from, what, from this passage that he had a pretty serious form because he's pretty desperate to get healing for it. So even though it was a time of peace between Israel and Aram, there was the occasional cross-border raid, because, you know, old habits die hard. So in one of these raids, um, some slaves were taken from Israel, and there's this young girl who's given to Naaman's wife as a servant. And um, she sees what's going on, and she just says, you know, my Naaman should go see this prophet in Samaria, and he would heal him. So this is quite a statement of faith by this, this young girl. Um, yeah, she's just, she's, she believes in God, and she believes that Elisha is a prophet. And we've read all this. So Naaman goes. It's fascinating, um, when he goes, he doesn't just go, like, get on a horse or walk over. He takes a whole entourage with him. Like, this is a huge deal. This is like a, a dignitary vision, visiting. He's got soldiers with him. He's got his chariots. 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold. It's around $3.5 million in today's money. Like, that's a... Pretty significant. Um, and with a letter to the king saying, you know, uh, I want you to heal him of, of leprosy. And the king of Israel, of course, realizes, I can't do that. And he freaks out a little. Um, he, he thinks that the king of Aram's just trying to pick a fight with him, go to war. Um, so he's quite distraught. Yeah, rips his clothes because that's what you do when you're upset. Back then, anyway. Um, Elisha hears about this and says, just send him to me. 
and then he will learn that there is a true, true prophet here in Israel. And it's interesting that the king of Israel, it didn't occur to him that this was a proper course of action. It, it occurred to the servant girl, but not the king of Israel. It says something about the state of Israel at that time. So Naaman went there, and um, I have a, a depiction of this. And you can see kind of like the, the, the scale of this. You have Naaman and all his attendants and soldiers and just a huge, huge deal. Comes to the door of Elisha's place, and Elisha doesn't even answer the door. He's, he doesn't even come to the door, doesn't invite him in for tea. None of that Middle Eastern hospitality. He just sends a messenger saying, you know, Naaman, you need to go wash. <laughs> in the Jordan, no less. Not a really nice river, in the Jordan. And you'll be healed. So Naaman gets really angry, understandably, because he's, uh, he's an, a very important person. You can't be treated that way, right? So... I thought he would certainly come out to meet me. And he had, Naaman had his healing plan. He thought, you know, the prophet would come, wave his hand over him, and he'd be healed. And um, God didn't do that, didn't do it that way. And he's like, why, sh why should I wash in the, in the Jordan River? The Jordan's dirty, it's icky. It's not like the beautiful rivers in Iran. So he went away in a rage. Um, luckily, his officers are, are wiser than him and less proud, and they, they say, you know, you should, you should do this. It's not too hard. I mean, what have you got to lose? You go wash in the river, the worst that happens is you get cleaner, right? Not a big deal, so maybe you should try it. Um, yeah, so he did it was healed, and then they went back to thank the man of God, Elisha, and um, this time they actually get to meet him, and Naaman says, now I know there's no God in all the world except in Israel, which is really interesting because he's not thanking Naaman, or he's not thanking Elisha as much as he's thanking God for the healing. So he, Naaman realizes that it's God who healed him, not Elisha. Nevertheless, he realizes God was working through Elisha, so he wants to give him a gift, which Elisha refuses. And then there's this kind of weird thing where he decide, Naaman says, well, it, during this time, people thought of gods as geographical entities, so if you wanted to worship a god, you had to have, you had to be in that area, or in this case, have some dirt from that area. So he's going to take some of the earth back from Israel so he can have a little area where he can worship God, which isn't quite a correct understanding of how God works, but, you know. And then he asks for a pardon because he has to worship Rimen, as part of his um, duties as a 
for Aram. And Alicia doesn't correct him. He just says, yeah, okay, go in peace. God be with you. So there you go. So there's a number, like if you look at this, there's a number of people that have done some really simple acts of obedience, and that kind of leads the story in the direction that it goes. And that's what I'd like to focus on today. And it works well for me. I like things simple. I did this thing, um, I did this values exercise, and I had, you make these cards. I had like, I don't know, there's like 70 cards of different values, and you're supposed to rate them as most important, not important. And you're supposed to narrow it down to 10 that you find most important. Super interesting exercise, super hard to do. Anyway, simple. Simplicity is in, in, it's in one of my top 10. I like things simple. So I like this story. God, as Wade was mentioning, God often, God works through us for whatever crazy reason. That's how he decides to do stuff. And often the things he asks us to do aren't really hard, per se. They're just simple things like go talk to that person or, you know, give that guy some food or whatever. Pray for someone. So that's, it seems to be how God likes to work. And it's often not, yeah, little things that we can do. So we're going to look at a few of the characters here. The servant girl, um, it's interesting, she's just even though she's in a foreign land and even though she's a slave, she still is, believes strongly enough, is comfortable enough in her faith to just say, you know, you should see this prophet. Like, God can heal you. So it's quite a strong act of faith, especially in that foreign environment. So we'll call that a simple act of obedience. And Naaman, there's a number of things. He's pretty full of himself, and he, he thinks he's pretty special. But even still, he listens to the servant girl. He goes to Israel. He kind of freaks out a bit, doesn't want to do what he's told, but then eventually does go in the Jordan and washes and is healed. And through the whole process, he's humbled. Um, because it is such a, he wanted something very special and something very big. And it was just such a simple little thing that brought the healing that he's, he's humbled and he realizes that perhaps he's a little bit too full of himself. But, and he realizes that God heals him. It was God that healed him. Elisha, <clears throat> we don't really know if God was telling Elisha exactly what to do, but it's throughout this, throughout Second Kings, we see that Elisha is really in touch with God. So, presumably, Elisha acts obediently to exactly what God has asked him to do. And he does these little things that you wouldn't necessarily think of, like he doesn't go out to greet Naaman, which seems awfully rude. But by doing that, <coughs> he keeps the focus from being on himself and being on God instead. Yeah, he doesn't heal Naaman directly, 
it's an indirect kind of thing. So it doesn't, he's not bringing glory. Elisha is not bringing glory to himself. He's letting the glory go to God. And he doesn't accept payment. Once again, just turning it to God. Otherwise, Naaman could say, well, I bought my healing. But this way, it's just, it's a gift from God. And the king of Israel didn't seem to really fit into this category. Um, he did not have faith in God, and he did not have faith in Elisha. It's interesting in this story that this contrasts with the servant girl. It contrasts almost with everyone else. Even Naaman and the king of Aram seem to have more faith in God than the king of Israel. So this is kind of a slap to the face for Israel, like, why are you guys not following God? If, if foreigners can do it, surely you can. I'm really good at repetition, too. I'm going to say these things a bunch of times so that you can hear it over and over, and maybe you'll remember. Yeah, man. Um, yeah, so Elisha does just what God asked him to do. And I... And because he stays in the background, um, Naaman can realize that God healed him. Elisha just shows grace and mercy to Naaman and not judgment. Like you think at the, the end of the story <coughs> where Elisha could have easily told Naaman what he should do, how to act if you're going to follow God. And he doesn't go into that. He just lets Naaman figure that out. He, he's letting um, God do the work. And it's so different than we, if we in that situation tend to be a lot more directive and tend to want to teach people a lot more than that. I've already said all that. What about God? Well, God is obviously in the story. Um, Israel at this time is far from God, and God is still there working through the prophets. And it's, I mean, it's hard for us to really understand this, but the nation of Israel has an identity as the people of God that we don't really, but the, it's um, like God created them. God created the nation. They were God's presence on earth. And so for God to slight them and bring healing to a foreigner is quite a big, quite a big deal. Jesus does this sometimes too, where he, where he heals like the Samaritan woman, for example, who was not even considered people by Israel. Samaritans were horrible. And yet God, God heals them. God's heart is for everyone. God's heart is for the nations. Except the proud. If you're proud and arrogant, it's real hard to follow God. And it's... Um, I see the other part of the story that's very interesting is how Naaman... He must have been desperate to actually reach the point where he would humble himself enough to be healed by God.
Yeah, Naaman is more open to God's working than the king of God's chosen people. Stepping into the New Testament, talking about obedience still, and um, which is kind of a harsh word. Um, like obedience doesn't sound fun. We don't like to do what we're told. Um, but Jesus did. Like even thinking the baptism, Jesus' baptism by uh, John the Baptist. Even John the Baptist said to him, you sh I shouldn't be baptizing you, you should be baptizing me. But Jesus was, Jesus said, you know, this is how things should be. So it's just a simple act of obedience on Jesus' part. And a lot of times in the New Testament, we see where Jesus prays, and then the next day or later, their course of action changes. Um, so sometimes it'll change where they're going the next day or some people they're going to see. So we see Jesus, just these simple actions where he follows God. And then the final big act of obedience of Jesus was to go to the cross. So we have, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, um, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus submits himself to God and obeys God, and it's, it reaps benefits for all of us. A few other examples of some weird kind of obedience things. Um, he heals the man born blind. He spits on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, put it on the man's eyes. Interesting. Um, and then go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. And I don't know, you look at a miracle like that and you're like, well, why, why would you do that? That doesn't even make any sense. Like, and, but, you know, Jesus was being obedient and something in how that was done was important to the process. So even though we don't necessarily understand why God asks us to do stuff, sometimes, you know, we should still do it. This is kind of bizarre, too, where Peter and, I think it's Peter, Peter and Jesus don't have the money for the temple tax. So Jesus says to Peter, go to the lake and throw your line, take the first fish you, fish you catch, open its mouth, and you'll find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Again, kind of bizarre. Like, why couldn't Jesus just create a coin? No, I'm going to put a coin in a fish that you have to catch. So, simple act of obedience, it all worked out. But doesn't make any sense. And we're talking about sustainable outward focus during this, this year. So the idea that um, we're focusing not on ourselves as much as the people around us and the community around us, but in such a way that we can sustain it. Um, and I think if you keep it simple and just do what God's asking 
and don't complicate it too much, then it's a lot easier to keep it sustainable. Like Alicia here did not do what Naaman expected at the, in the way he wanted. He only did what God asked. Yeah. And it's very tempting and very easy for us to want to gain something personally through our actions. And if we do something like that, or if we're trying to bring the glory to ourselves, it ends up actually backfiring and just draining us because it becomes this thing where we just, we want more and we feel like we have to pour out more to get more instead of just letting God do it. We tend to complicate things and not let God do the work. <clears throat> um, hmm. I had another story somewhere. I went to uh, I went to Regent College um, for a few years, and. One of the things there is you spend a lot of time studying the minutia of God, you know? So you, you could easily spend an entire class talking about one word and how to translate it. And it's very, um, it's very cerebral and it's very complicated. And it's very, it can really distract you from God. And now Regent does things to try to counteract that like they actually have they have it's like small groups so you're in a community and and they try to foster help you foster a relationship in God but I definitely ran into people who the regent experience was a lot more academic and not very relational and I think part of the reason is just because it became so complex and you get so mired in all the the details and I mean some people even have been known to lose their faith when they really start digging into um, into scripture, or not just scripture, but how it's been interpreted, because there's so much controversy. Like if you go look through the history of the church, almost everything has been debated one way or another, and that can be very shaking to your foundation. I mean, the fact is, if you look through the entire history of the church, there are certain things that almost everyone has believed as well. So there is a continuity of faith, and, but there's a bunch of other stuff that's just, who knows what truth really is. So there's barriers that make us hard for us to obey, pride and selfishness. Um, one of the things we all inherit when we're born is the sense of um, pride and self and wanting to um, glorify ourselves. That always gets in the way of obedience. Risk-taking. Um, so even though these are simple acts that God us, asks us to do, sometimes they're really hard acts. Like, um, like God will tell Rose, my wife, Rose sometimes to go talk to someone, and for her that's not a hard act usually, because she's very outgoing. God tells me to talk to someone, and I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm not doing that. A stranger? I don't talk to strangers. 
So risks, risks sometimes end up being in the simple act, so they're not quite as simple as they seem. And you know, we want to do things our way. We're stubborn, disobedient. If you have children, you know that you don't have to teach them this. It's just there. <laughs> and our motives, we, we tend to be pretty messy people. Like, our motives are often mixed. Um, like, why, why are we actually doing something? I was talking to a worship leader who isn't in our, in our church, and he... Um, I don't know, you like to think of worship leaders as people who really are worshiping God when they're up here, and that's kind of their primary motivation. It's not always quite that simple. So he said one of the things he liked about being on the stage was he didn't have to be out and talk to people, because he really didn't want to talk to people. So, I mean, he's worshiping God, but he's also kind of happy that he's, he doesn't have to, you know, pray for people. So kind of mixed motives, you know? I'm sure none of you are like that, but I, I preach just because I like to be the center of attention, you know? I... <laughs> and we tend to complicate things. Or we, or we barter with God or something. You know, God says, you should go talk to this person. I'm like, well, what if I just give him a note? Or what if I, maybe I could do this. This is easier. How about this? Uh, no. I talked about that. Some other kind of fun little examples. Um, so this is Mark ten fourteen, Jesus and the children. And he said to his disciples, let the children come to me, don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God is like a child, like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on their heads and blessed them. So, you know, just this idea of simple, pure actions. When children are young, they tend to be, they just do. They just kind of, they think and they act. They don't, there isn't a lot of second guessing or there isn't a lot of um, manipulation that comes later when they're teens. Um, just simple, pure actions, and that's how God wants us to interact with him. So, talking about simple obedience, I don't know if you got the message. The idea is that we follow God in the simple things, and we don't make them hard. Just like Naaman did, and even though it was hard for him to go wash himself initially, when he did the simple act, it brought great reward. Don't get distracted by all the glory and the riches and, and your plans and our egos and the things we want. Just obey. I like the example of Mother Teresa. Um, very godly woman, very... who served the poor. And she did it in such a simple way. And she lived a very simple life and they just went out on the streets and they saw the need and they served people. And it just, it changed thousands of lives. So on the bulletin, I have a few questions. 
But I think really only the question I think that you should try to dwell on is just what is one small act of obedience that God is asking you to do this week? And if you can even do that every day, that'd be even better, but we'll set the bar low and say this week. Try to do one small act of obedience for God this week. So maybe you know what that is already. Maybe you need to ask God what it is. Maybe there's something that God's asked you to do that you've just been not doing because you don't want to or it's too hard. But I'd encourage you, challenge you to do that this week. And then we'll end with this prayer that Mother Teresa used to pray that is very profound. So let's pray. Dear Jesus, help me to spread thy fragrance everywhere I go. Flood my soul with thy spirit and love. Penetrate and possess my whole being so utterly that all my life may only be a radiance of thine. Shine through me and be so in me that every soul I come into contact with may feel thy presence in my soul. Let them look up and see no longer me, but only Jesus. Stay with me, and then I shall begin to shine as you shine, so to shine as to be a light to others. Amen.